Hello and welcome to Folklore of the Universe, the podcast that's got all the critics saying, I don't know what that is. I'm your host, Kyle. Welcome to episode 10. Goddamn, this is ha- this got this has to be some sort of milestone, right? 10 episodes? Like, I think that's where it really is an officially real, official podcast. And that's what it's written down in the book of of how things go net but 10 episodes now we've got one for every person who listens to this show so that works out quite nicely for this episode i'm just going to do the standard format again but i've realized that i haven't done a grim story since episode one and since this is episode 10 that'd be kind of fitting to do another grim story for this episode and then do another irish one because i just really like them so that's what's in store and I guess I've got nothing else to talk about now, so let's get down to it. First up, of course, is the Grimm's Fairy Story. This is number 17 in the Grimm's Collection. This is called The White Snake. A long time ago, there lived a king who was famed for his wisdom throughout all the land. Nothing was hidden from him, and it seemed as if news of the most secret things was brought to him through the air. But he had a strange custom. Every day after dinner, when the table was cleared and no one else was present, a trusty servant had to bring him one more dish. It was covered, however, and even the servant did not know what was in it, nor did anyone know, for the king never took off the cover to eat until he was quite alone. This had gone on for a long time, when one day the servant, who took away the dish, was overcome with such curiosity that he could not help carrying the dish into his room. When he had carefully locked the door, he lifted up the cover and saw a white snake lying on the dish. When he saw it, he could not deny himself the pleasure of tasting it, so he cut off a little bit and put it into his mouth. No sooner had it touched his tongue than he heard a strange whispering of little voices outside his window. He went and listened, and then noticed that it was the sparrows who were chattering together and telling one another of all kinds of things which they had seen in the fields and woods. Eating the snake had given him the power of understanding the language of animals. Now it so happens that on this very day, the queen lost her most beautiful ring, and suspicion of having stolen it fell upon this trusty servant, who was allowed to go everywhere. The king ordered the man to be brought before him, and threatened with angry words that unless he could, before the morrow, point out the thief, he himself should be looked upon as guilty and executed. In vain he declared his innocence. He was dismissed with no better answer. In his trouble and fear, he went down into the courtyard and thought about how to help himself out of his trouble. Now some ducks were sitting together quietly by a brook and taking their rest, and, while they were making their feathers smooth with their bills, they were having a confidential conversation together. The servant stood by and listened. They were telling one another of all the places where they'd been waddling about all the morning, and what good food they had found, and one said in a pitiful tone, Something lies heavy in my stomach. As I was eating in haste, I swallowed a ring which lay under the queen's window. The servant at once seized her by the neck, carried her to the kitchen, and said to the cook, Here's a fine duck. Pray, kill her. Yes, said the cook, and weighed her in his hand. She has spared no trouble to fatten herself, and has been waiting to be roasted long enough. So he cut off her head, and as she was being dressed for the spit, the queen's ring was found inside her. The servant could now easily prove his innocence, and the king, to make amends for the wrong, allowed him to ask a favor, and promised him the best place in the court he could wish for. The servant refused everything, and asked only for a horse and some money for traveling, as he had a mind to see the world and go about a little. 
When his request was granted, he set out on his way, and one day came to a pond where he saw three fishes caught in the reeds and gasping for water. Now, though it is said that the fishes are mute, he heard them lamenting that they must perish so miserably, and, as he had a kind heart, he got off his horse and put the three prisoners back into the water. They quivered with delight, put out their heads, and cried to him, We will remember you and repay you for saving us. He rode on, and after a while it seemed to him that he heard a voice in the sand at his feet. He listened and heard an ant king complain, Why cannot folks, with their clumsy beasts, keep off our bodies? That stupid horse with his heavy hooves has been treading down my people without mercy. So the servant turned onto a side path, and the ant king cried out to him, We will remember you. One good turn deserves another. The path led him into a wood, and here he saw two old ravens standing by their nest and throwing out their young ones. Out with you, you idle, good-for-nothing creatures, cried they. We cannot find food for you any longer. You are big enough, and can provide for yourselves. But the poor young ravens lay upon the ground, flapping their wings and crying, Oh, what helpless chicks are we! We must shift for ourselves, and yet we cannot fly. What can we do but lie here and starve? So the good young fellow alighted and killed his horse with his sword and gave it to them for food. Then they came hopping up to it, satisfied their hunger, and cried, We will remember you. One good turn deserves another. And now he had to use his own legs, and when he had walked a long way, he came to a large city. There was a great noise and crowd in the streets, and a man rode up on horseback, crying aloud, The king's daughter wants a husband, but whoever pursues her hand must perform a hard task and if he does not succeed, he will forfeit his life. Many had already made the attempts, but in vain. Nevertheless, the youth saw the king's daughter, and he was so overcome by her great beauty that he forgot all danger, went before the king, and declared himself a suitor. So he was led out to the sea, and a gold ring was thrown into it, in his sight. Then the king ordered him to fetch the ring up from the bottom of the sea, and added, if you come up again without it, you'll be thrown in again and again, until you will perish amid their waves. All the people grieved for the handsome youth. Then they went away, leaving him alone by the sea. He stood on the shore and considered what he should do, when suddenly he saw three fishes come swimming towards him, and they were the very fishes whose lives he had saved. The one in the middle held a mussel in its mouth, which it laid on the shore at the youth's feet, and when he had taken it up and opened it, there lay the gold ring in the shell. Full of joy, he took it back to the king, and expected that he would grant him the promised reward. But when the proud princess perceived that he was not her equal in birth, she scorned him, and required him first to perform another task. She went down into the garden and strewed with her own hands ten sacks full of millet seed on the grass. Then she said, Tomorrow morning before sunrise these must be picked up, with not a single grain missing. The youth sat down in the garden, and considered how it might be possible to perform this task, but he could think of nothing, and there he sat sorrowfully awaiting the break of day when he should be led to death. But as soon as the first rays of the sun shone into the garden, he saw all the ten sacks standing side by side, quite full, and not a single grain was missing. The ant king had come in the night, with thousands and thousands of ants, and the grateful creatures had by great industry picked up all the millet seed and gathered them into the sacks. Presently, the king's daughter herself came down into the garden, and was amazed to see that the young man had done the task she had given him. But she could not yet conquer her proud heart, and said, Although he has performed both the tasks, he shall not be my husband until he has brought me an apple from the tree of life. The youth did not know where the tree of life stood, 
but he set out and would have gone on forever as long as his legs would carry him, though he had no hope of finding it. After he had wandered through three kingdoms, he came one evening to a wood and lay down under a tree to sleep, but he heard a rustling on the branches and a golden apple fell into his hands. At the same time, three ravens flew down to him, perched themselves upon his knee, and said, We are the three young ravens whom you saved from starving. When we had grown big and heard that you were seeking the golden apple, we flew over the sea to the end of the world where the tree of life stands and have brought you the apple. The youth, full of joy, set out homewards and took the golden apple to the king's beautiful daughter, who had no more excuses left to make. They cut the apple of life in two and ate it together, and then their heart became full of love for him, and they lived in undisturbed happiness to a great age. The End This is quite clearly another one of those Be Nice to Strangers stories. Even more specifically, it's a Be Nice to Animals stories, which is always a good message. I think that's something everyone needs to keep in mind. Unlike a lot of Grimm stories with animals in them, this is sort of an unusual animal cast. Normally, they've got frogs and wolves and things like that, but this has got fish, ants, and crows, which don't really show up that much in other Grimm stories. The whole story setup of someone having to complete three impossible tasks to win something good is a pretty standard one, though. That shows up a lot. That even goes back to Greek myths, you know, Hercules having to do all of his impossible tasks. So it's just a that's just a pretty typical hero thing to do. Of course, in the Grimm stories, they get help through trickery or through animals like in this one, instead of Hercules just being really swole. I think it is an interesting thing to note in these Grimm stories that the characters aren't always princes and princesses. Like this guy starts off as a servant. There's other ones that don't have royalty at all. They're just tailors or farmers or fishermen. Some are just inanimate objects like bits of straw or a sausage are both characters in Grimm's stories. So the popularized ones all focus around princes and princesses, but their actual stories are a lot more diverse. They're about you know people of all ages, all classes, all genders. So really, Grimm's stories, they're, they're the stories of the people right there. I think the presence of this white snake that lets people talk to animals is also really interesting. There is actually a Chinese folk story called The Legend of the White Snake, but that is not related to this in any way besides the existence of a white snake. What the story is really telling about is how people saw animals and how animals existed in the world. It really reveals that people thought that animals all had their own languages that they talked to each other with and that with the right magic you could understand them. And it's really interesting that fishes were seen as a exception to this, because it specifically says that most people think that fishes can't talk. But of course, the story also claims that they can, which is, again, very, very interesting. Maybe they can only talk when they're out of the water, is the idea? I don't know. I'm not a marine biologist, so I, I can't really comment on that. This is probably one of the happier of the Grimace fairy tales, though, because this does go with the stereotypical happily ever after ending instead of horrible death and misery. This is definitely one of the more positive and uplifting stories in the collection. Which just goes to show, if you're nice to animals, good things happen to you. The fact that the story is in two parts is also something that you see in other stories of this type. 
where the first half sort of sets up the main character and his backstory, where he got his start, then the second half is his actual personal journey and trials. But now I'm going to move on to our next story. We're going to do an Irish folk story now. This story is called The Fairy Spy. Sometimes the fairies appear like old men and women, and thus gain admission to houses that they may watch and spy, and bewitch the butter, and abduct the children, and carry off the young girls for fairy brides. There was a man in the west who was bedridden for seven years, and could do no work, and had to be lifted by others when he was moved. Yet the amount of food he consumed was enormous, and as everyone pitied him, people were constantly bringing him all sorts of good things, and he ate up everything, but grew no stronger. Now, on Sundays when the family went to Mass, they locked him up, but left him plenty of food, for there's no one in the house to help him. One Sunday, however, they left chapel earlier than usual, and as they were going by the shore, they saw a great crowd of strangers hurling, and in the midst of them, hurling and running and leaping, was the sick man, as well and jolly as ever a man could be. They called out to him, on which he turned around to face them, but that instant he disappeared. So the family hastened home, unlocked the door, and went straight up to the room, where they found the man in bed as usual, thin and weak and unable to move. But he had eaten up all the food, and was now crying out for more. On this the family grew very angry and cried, You have been deceiving us. You are in league with the witch folk, but we'll soon see what you really are. For if you don't get up out of that bed at once, we'll make down a fire and lay you on it, and make you walk. Then he cried and roared. They seized him to drag him to the fire. So when he saw that they were in earnest, he jumped up and rushed to the door, and before they could touch him, he had disappeared, and he was seen no more. Now, indeed, they knew that he was in league with the devil, and they burned his bed and everything belonging to him, and poured holy water on the room. And when all was burned, nothing remained but a black stone with strange signs on it. And by this, no doubt, he performed his enchantments. And the people were afraid of it, and gave it to the priest, who has it to this day, so there can be no doubt as to the truth of the story. And the priest knows the hidden meaning of the strange signs which give power to the stone, but will reveal the secret to no one, lest the people might try to work the devil's magic with it, and unlawful spells by the power of the stone and the power of the signs. The End This is another one of the Irish folklores where the fairies are malevolent, instead of being helpful and nice. So remember, it's not all pots of gold people. Sometimes they pretend to be old dudes and do dark magic in your house and eat all your food. Which, I gotta say, are not qualities you really want in a roommate. I mean, they're qualities you're gonna get in a roommate. Like, pretty much every roommate you ever have is going to eat your food and do dark magic in your home. But the ideal, the ideal isn't there. You want something better than that. Now, in this particular story, these aren't your run-of-the-mill fairies. These are a specific type called the Sidhi. They're similar to the other Irish fairies, or good people, as they prefer to be called, in a number of ways. For example, their origin in pre-Christian Ireland, they're believed to be these older nature spirits who were the original inhabitants of the island before humans showed up. Post-Christian Ireland, they were believed to be angels who got kicked out of heaven but didn't get kicked down to hell. Um, they just got sent to go live on Earth. Because of this, again, like the other good people, they are repelled by Christian symbols like the cross and holy water. Uh, priests are a good way to counter them. And they also are extremely beautiful. They live decadent, luxurious lifestyles and sometimes enchant people away to go live with them. 
The city do seem to be generally a lot more malevolent than the other types of good people, though. Most of the stories revolving around them are just them being jerks and being really aggressive towards people, whereas some of the other stories with the other categories of the good people, while it can be malevolent, if people are respectful towards them and respect their wishes and work with them, then they'll be nice and even sometimes reward those people. So they are a lot chiller than the Sidhi are. The word Sidhi can also refer to the tumuli or barrows that dot the landscape of Ireland, which are burial mounds. These big, they look like hills, but they're actually full of dead people. If anyone's a uh, Lords of the Rings fan, like the Barrow Whites that, that attack them and draw them in, it's like that. It's these burial mounds. And they're all over in Ireland. And they're generally considered magical places where spirits like the Sidhi or other types of good people hang out. Which, of course, also means they're places to avoid. A lot of these old structures, as we've seen across some of the other Irish stories, like the, the Raths and the Barrows, are seen as really magical areas, which explains why there's this connection with the good people there. So these could have even been seen as homes for the Sidhi, because a lot of depictions of the good people have them living underground or inside hills. So it's probably thought that they would live inside these burial mounds. One other interesting thing I want to get into with this story is the whole notion that fairies or good people or spirits will sometimes impersonate the elderly. Kind of a weird thing to come up with, but a lot of these stories and spirits are used as explanations for disabilities or illnesses that people have. So one theory that could explain this is that this sort of story came around to explain things like Alzheimer's or dementia. Because if you're a peasant and you don't know anything about how the brain works and your grandpa or grandma starts acting really weird one day, you're not going to know it's because of any illness. You're going to think that it's some fuckery done by the spirits or the good people. And while we can't prove it for sure, that's one very solid explanation for where stories like these come from. But that is all I've got for this episode. Uh, before I go, I do have some announcements, though. So starting next episode, I'm going to add in a new segment, which I think will be really good and uh, make the show a lot more interesting. And it's something that also will vary greatly week to week. So I won't announce what it is yet, but tune in next time to see what, what that is. I've also realized that there's no easy way for people to contact me if they've got any questions or suggestions or story requests. If you want to request a specific folk story, feel free to. But contact-wise, you can um, email me at the email that's associated with my YouTube account that I put these up on, and a few other videos. And that email is, get your pens ready, ready? Contactkyleshort at gmail.com. That's contact, as in to contact something. Uh, Kyle, that's like it is, and short, as in small, diminutive. Then at gmail.com. So email me there, and I will possibly see it at some point and get back to you if you've got any questions or feedback or requests or any of that stuff. Uh, but that is, that's been all for this week, this week's episode. There'll be another one in two weeks with the special new stuff. If you've enjoyed this, please share it around to all your friends and family. Uh, if you haven't enjoyed this, please let me know what I could do better. And then still share it around to your friends and family because I can, you know, try and improve it, make it better. And that is all, so I will see you next episode in two weeks time, and goodbye! <laughs>